Hello, small business owners. Welcome to this episode of the Freedom Focus Podcast. Today, I'm particularly honored to have Tara Jackson as my guest on the show to discuss an important report she made me aware of several months ago titled The Demographic Drought, How the Approaching Sands-Demic Will Transform the Labor Market for the Rest of Our Lives. That's a pretty ominous title there. Tara is the president of the Arizona Town Hall, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that brings together Arizonans with diverse perspectives from all over the state to create consensus solutions for policy issues that are of greatest concern to the citizens of Arizona. Welcome to the show, Tara. Thanks, Darren. Wonderful to be here. Tara is going to share with you how she came to know about the demographic drought report and why she found it to be so enlightening, especially for the work she does on behalf of the Arizona Town Hall. Tara and I are going to then tag team an effort to introduce you to the important findings shared in the report, including what the heck a sandsdemic is, a, and then we're going to talk about the three part primary causes of the sandsdemic or what the report calls that demographic drought what the profound impacts are of this drought, and finally, recommendations for how to manage the challenges that are caused by this demographic drought. Lots to cover today, all of which we hope you will find extremely insightful as well as helpful. Not if, but when you experience the effects of the demographic drought firsthand in your organization. So to get started, I want to first do a little bit of disclosure here, and that is that I've been a member of the Arizona Town Hall for over 25 years. I started back when I was a graduate student at Arizona State University, so a long time ago. And I'm also, for disclosure, a member of the Arizona Town Hall Board of Directors. I've been a member of the board and honored to be a member of the board since 2018. Um, so needless to say, I'm a very big believer in the Arizona Town Hall, what it does, what it's about, and its mission. Now, Tara, for a little bit more bio information on her, Tara's an attorney by trade, um, she practices employment or practiced employment and commercial litigation for 16 years before she assumed the leadership position she has now with the Arizona Town Hall. And Terry, you've been a member of or you've been the president of the Town Hall for about 16 years now. Is that right? 16 and a half years. Yep. And what else do you want to share with anybody that might be relevant that I might have missed in your bio? Anything more or are we good? Well, I think maybe relevant to the conversation we're having today, whether it was in my practice of law, which I deeply enjoyed, or the work that I do at Arizona Town Hall, I have always been personally interested in how we create positive social and economic change. What are the systems uh, in place that we need to be thinking about? And uh, also my undergrad degree was in biology and I am still very much a fan of the scientific method using data and using that data to analyze how to create those solutions to whatever the problem is we're looking at, whether it is a major policy issue for the state of Arizona to review and determine what to do about, or it is how to help out some of the clients that come to the Arizona Town Hall increasingly to ask, what do we do about workforce issues? Absolutely. And and I love what you said about data, Tara, because um, that is something that's really important to the Arizona Town Hall. Uh, and we're not going to go into detail about the process. I'm going to put a link to Tara's email address if you'd like to reach out to her, but also the Arizona Town Hall website. Go on there and right there it talks about what the, pr the process is. But when there's a consensus building gathering, you might say, for a town hall, uh, there's always some research that goes into that, some data, so that the decisions um, that that are brought uh, brought forward um, are based on data. So, Tara, um, I really appreciate that you highlighted that point about um, not only what the town hall does, but your personal interest in that. Um, I also wanted to clarify that uh, that I have been very uh, fortunate as part of what I do for the board of directors and volunteering, working with uh, Tara and the Arizona Town Hall on some coaching. We did uh, my dream team process of, of hiring. Uh, we, we walked the town hall through that process. And then I'm also uh, doing a little work with Tara and the, uh, and, the, and the board on just kind of operational fine tuning. 
And then lastly, and I would say perhaps most importantly, what drives all of what I do for Town Hall in that regard is I'm trying to make sure that Tara has some freedom. She's one of the most valuable assets that we have at Town Hall, speaking about labor force and demographics and people. And so making sure that she has as much freedom as possible as the leader of the organization, so she she sticks around for a long time, speaking selfishly as a member of the board, is really something I strive and work hard for. So um, Tara, hopefully all of that stuff is, uh, is helpful to you and the organization. It is very helpful. And I think that, you know, so often the principles that, that can apply to business that are effective are very helpful as well for nonprofits. Uh, so it is very helpful and very much appreciated. Okay, so Tara, um, let me ask a couple of questions just to kind of work ourselves into this report. Um, first of all, how did you learn about the demographic report, which, by the way, I'll put links in the show notes so you guys can download your own copy of this. But how did you first come to know this? And, and uh, um, well, let's just start there, I guess. Well, it comes in part from that desire to always look at an issue with facts and data whenever possible. In this instance, there, we had a number of entities who had approached the town hall to consult with them to help address issues separately in separate geographical areas of the state. Both were trying to address workforce issues in the region. Coming in as the consultant to help them uh, figure out a process for how do we look at the issue? How do we resolve it? What are the action steps moving forward? One of the questions that came up for me was to inquire wh where the data is on the current workforce situation and demographics. Keep in mind that while brought in as a consultant, I was actually working with people in some instances who were the workforce experts in that area, working with government uh, within that area for many years. At the time, the answers I kept getting were, I, I'd say, really more personal stories of, well, you know, we had the pandemic occur and people have gotten used to unemployment, they're not coming back to work, or rural Arizona saying it's, it's Phoenix taking all of our employees, or it's housing costs or childcare costs. What, uh, what some of these responses pointed out to me is that we needed to see the facts behind it. Are these personal beliefs just based on anecdotal evidence or uh, is it based on a real trend that's occurring in that region? So to get the best answers on how to move forward, I was deeply interested in actually seeing the numbers. What is really happening? Back to the data. <laughs> Back to the data. And it really didn't exist from the clients I was working with. So I went to some of my resources that were lucky enough at the town hall to have very good relationships with in higher education and started uh, searching for who has workforce data who works with us on a daily basis. In this instance, uh, the Maricopa Community Colleges, who does a lot of work with workforce, pointed me in the direction of their resident expert, if you will. He shared a couple of reports with me, the initial report that you're talking about, as well as specific data on the regions in Arizona for that period of time, which reflected surprisingly to me, all the trends that were brought up in that report. Excellent. Okay. Well, and, um, you know, and then you and I started, you know, when you told me about the report, I should say, now, it was pretty clear that it had made a pretty big impression on you. And we're going to be diving into some of the finer details of that report in just a minute. But before we do that, from a big picture perspective, Explain what impressed you so much about this particular report that you and I are spending an entire podcast episode basically focused on. What, what, was, the, that, what was it that impressed you? That it showed data of a dramatic systemic change that many people were not aware of. Not aware of. And one that is incredibly important. If you want to solve your problem of whether it's workforce or water or, or the economic issues, you need to be aware when there's been a major systems change that's impacting any efforts you make. So in this case, uh, and I know you'll get into this, what I was struck with is that the traditional historical ways of addressing workforce issues were simply not going to solve the problem because there was a much greater systemic um, 
change happening and that to address the future workforce issues for these different clients in different regions of Arizona, there needed to be an appreciation for and a utilization of the systems change. And, and Tara, I remember in that conversation where you first told me about this and you were, you know, again, just like, Darren, this was this incredible report. And then I said, you got to send it to me because I keep talking about this stuff. But I remember you telling me that there were um, people that you were doing the consulting with. They were going down the traditional answers and solutions mode. And you're going, wake up, guys and gals that's not going to work. And this is why. Is that, is that accurate uh, remembering of what you found? A absolutely. Because those traditional ways of getting the workforce you need, they, yeah. they were going to have a minor impact, maybe a minor temporary positive impact. Uh -huh. But overall, it would not solve the problem. In fact, the problem is going to get get worse in many communities if, if you just keep doing the traditional method of solving your workforce issues. Solving the workforce issues. Gotcha. So this okay. is a game changer, a game yeah. changer. G game changer. And I think everybody's going to see and know, hear that anyway um, when we get done. And by the way, I have, uh, I have an article that I just wrote kind of summarizing all of this. And that will also be a link to the uh, in the show notes for that article if you want to go and read kind of the summary as well that I that I showcased in my uh, in that article. Okay, so Tara, let's uh, walk the listeners through the main findings now from this report: demographic drought. And I want to start off with, if you could, um, that funny word that they threw into the subtitle, sandemic. That was in the subtitle. What exactly is a sandemic according to the report? It's a new term of art uh, that I learned from the report, and it essentially means without people. What are we going to do when we have a lot less people to handle our workforce and other needs? Gotcha. So that was an interesting one. Um, and, uh, and and an interesting term. If nothing else, it catches your attention. So that's what sandemic is all about. Without, right? Without enough people. So let's talk about the. I want to talk now about the causes of this demographic drought. And um, basically, a lot of people tend to blame where we are now. And I and and I wrote uh, another article and did a podcast on the Great Resignation. Those are all just actually uh, pieces of this larger picture that comes that's being painted here. And by the way, the trends that we're seeing, uh, and, and it's really the causes we're going to dive into, they're a long time in the making. They uh, All COVID did was accelerate mm -hmm. uh, something that was already in the works. And maybe you might even say reveal what was already going on in a, in a way that people like to associate with COVID, which means that's gone or at least subsided, and now we can go back to business as usual. And Tara's made it very clear that there is no back to business as usual. We have to move on. So let me talk about the first one. And then, then Tara, she's there's three basic um, causes that the, the report highlights. I'm going to do the first one, and then Tara will jump in and, and talk about the second one. First of all, the, the first cause is the is the birth rate. And, and we're basically at the lowest birth rate in U.S. history right now. And uh, this is not unique to the United States. This is the this is and in actual in actuality, um, other places in the world like Europe and Japan, and 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 China, they actually preceded us on this. We we're about I guess they they said about ten or fifteen years behind. But if you just look at the U.S. in the eighteen in eighteen hundred, uh, the fertility rate, meaning the number of children per female or family, was seven. So the typical female would have about seven children in their in their lifetime. Uh, and there has been a very steady decline. And I put that graph in my article. There's a steady decline basically from 1800 to about 1940. And by the time we get to 1940, uh, we basically have the low point or we're, we're actually not the low point. But we're at about two children per family, basically. And that was in, in 1940. And by the way, 
the the uh, fertility rate or the birth rate uh, that uh, keeps us neither growing nor shrinking as a population is 2.1. The 0.1 accounts for people that are prematurely dying before they can be a part of the uh, the uh, population additive, if you will. Um, so 2.1 is the target. If we're below that, we're shrinking. If we're above it, we're we're growing. Now, the children of the silent generation that were born between 1928 and 1945 um, they, their children were the boomers, the baby boomers. And a lot of you have, uh, there's a lot been talked about and made of the baby boomer generation. Basically, coming back from World War II, um, there was a, a, a lot of, of uh, family creation happening at that time. And that was where the boom comes from, the baby boom. Um, and the boomers are the children of the uh, silent generation. They were born between 1946 and 1964. So the blip that happened during the boomer generation uh, was in 1960, the peak, and it was all the way up to 3.58. That was the birth rate at that point. And so that was where we had this temporary blip up, but then it continued the trend because the children of the boomers, which is Gen X, that's me, um, as well as millennials, uh, those were basically uh, drops. And in 1980, we had the low birth rate of the lowest was 1.77 in 1980. And it's trended up just a little bit, but it's hovering around 2.0. And Generation X and the Millennials, we're not really doing much different <clears throat> when it comes to the birth rate. It's about 2.0. Um, so that creates a problem where we're not adding people. <laughs> we're not adding people uh, by by just uh, uh, internally, you might say. And, and that really causes a problem. And the report goes on about the importance of that. So Tara, um, before we move on to the next point, did you want to add anything that that caught your attention in that part of the that cause, uh, if you will? I think I would summarize and add to that. The baby boomer generation that we've all heard so much about and you described very well is the largest, and this is the important part I want to add in the United States, the wealthiest generation ever. Absolutely. So not only was there this huge influx of people and into our economy, but also this influx of wealth. And, and now I'm, I'm specifically talking about the United States, although that does impact some other countries as well. And that's relevant to some of the other items. And two of the, let me, let me thank you for bringing that up because that's a super important point. And it's actually a driver of one of the causes uh, we'll see here in a minute, but, but two things happened is that uh, when the baby boomers, uh, when they, they had their children, the baby boomers had fewer children, which means they had more, they didn't have as many mouths to feed, let's put it that way. <clears throat> Secondly, in the 1970s, that's when women started joining the workforce. And now we've got the first real time we had double income. So that's huge wealth creation just from that one, th th those two demographic things, fewer children, fewer mouths to feed, but also double the people in the workforce with the boomers. So um, that's a, a, a huge element. So the first one is first cause was low birth rate. Second one is the mass exodus of the baby boomers from the workforce, which we're seeing right now. Tara, do you want to elaborate a little bit more on that one for us? Yeah, and actually, maybe I'll use my former law firm as an example. So I'm actually just barely a generation Xer like you. But when I was practicing law, uh, my partners, the vast majority of them were baby boomers, a, a wonderful place to work. They closed up this law firm at the end of last year. This is an example of the trend that you see in the report. And now I'm going to explain what that is. We just said the baby boomers are not only the largest generation, very important to look at for demographics, but the wealthiest, especially in the United States for a variety of reasons, including women entering the workforce, but also because of some other economic things that were happening post-World War II in the United States. So the baby boomers have a lot of extra wealth they're sitting on as the wealthiest generation. And this means that they have more choices. They can choose and the pandemic accelerated this um, thought around choice, they can choose to not work so much because they have extra income. They can choose to work part-time. They can choose to take themselves out of the workforce. So my uh, law partners who all closed up shop at the end of last year, 
many of them are not yet of that official, you know, social security retirement age, but because like many baby boomers, they had sufficient wealth, they chose to retire early. Now, what's the impact of the pandemic? Prior to the pandemic, this trend was already happening. There were about 2 million um, boomers leaving the workforce a year, retiring because they had the funding to do so a little earlier than previous generations. On average, we're talking global trends. After the pandemic, that jumped by a million baby boomers a year. The pandemic, as we all know, accelerated many trends already happening. The pandemic made people reassess how, you know, what really matters to me in my life? Do I wanna work this hard? Well, if I have extra money, maybe I have another choice. Yep. So, so that that's one of the impacts of being the wealthiest generation is the choice to leave the workforce or to leave it full time. And then um, what's the loss of the, what's the loss of uh, all these, um, the baby boomers, uh, uh, you know, causing? What's the impact of that on uh, our ability to perform work, Tara? How's that working? The experience and wisdom that come with the baby boomers, many of them, they're at the peak of their careers with yep. incredible knowledge. Yep. And so there is this sudden dearth of wisdom and knowledge leaving the workforce. That affects the ability for senior leadership positions, for even just the historical knowledge of industries and, and organizations. Yeah, yeah. And they talk about just a loss of, uh, of just general productivity because now you might have had those senior leaders um, at organizations being able to um, make sure that all the, the trains ran, run, run on time because of experience and, and, and wisdom. Uh, now you've got people of less wisdom that have to lead because somebody's got to do the leading and it's just going to be a reduced uh, productivity happening. The third one is record low labor participation rates. Um, and uh, Tara, why don't you kind of talk us through that one? What's going on with the participation rates? We just don't have as many people just participating. And what's that look like? I thought this was the most uh, fascinating one to me because it was not one I would have expected. Before I give the overview of this one, I, I want to make it very clear my personal opinion that far more important than this aspect is just this demographic shift. This is just one smaller aspect of it. Important, very important, but um, the demographic shift is really the biggest one. This specifically looks at prime age working men, which is defined as the ages between 25 and 54. What is interesting is that that rate of participation in the workforce full-time has gone down fairly dramatically. Yeah. For the first time in, in the history of these numbers being kept, yeah. this has gone down. And so the, the question is, why? Yeah. And there is just the beginning of collecting data on this and some opinions or theories. So I'll share those. But, but know that we can't always know until you would actually go out and interview large numbers of these working age men to find out. But here are some of the, the theories. One, I want to start with what we've already talked about the baby boomers being the wealthiest generation ever. So they have some extra money to spend and to provide for their children. Right. And they're having fewer children. And so what does this mean? That they might be um, providing funding to their children so their children don't have to work as much if they choose not to. Right. There is a much, uh, a record number of men who, of this age, who are living with their parents as opposed to a spouse historically. Yeah. Yeah. So they're getting support from their, their parents, which give them more options and more choices. There, there is also perhaps a trend with the opioid epidemic, which has really hit uh, working, uh, prime age working men hard uh, in, in this country and in some others as well. So that's another one of the theories. What this has turned into is that men of this prime age working um, demographic are simply choosing more to work part-time than full-time yeah. versus any time historically. Yeah. Um, and, and there's also some 
there was an interesting correlation. It doesn't really have strong evidence, but I found it interesting nonetheless, that it turns out that the amount of hours that prime age working men are, are no longer working correlates to the same number of hours that that age group says they're playing video games per week. <laughs> I, now, I is that really that. supported by in-depth scientific experience? I'm not sure, but that was a uh, an interesting correlation. You're right, and I and I was hoping you were going to point that one out because mm -hmm. that one, nonetheless, is at least a little a little interesting, if not humorous, that 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 connection is being made. But but um, uh, I do want to uh, I want to talk about the opioid uh, epidemic and that because. That's actually a topic that town halls directly uh, tackling, right? And and so uh, this issue is is obviously impacting. I don't think anybody thought of it this way, but people are like, okay, well, if you've got a sickness in that way, you know, that's sad, that's unfortunate. But in reality, it affects us all in this way of labor force. And you and so the town hall is addressing this, right? In in some of what the work we're doing, Tara. We are. We, we take on one topic in depth every year, and this year that topic is mental health, substance use, and homelessness, which are all connected. Uh, mental health and opioid use can be uh, very closely connected, but the opioid epidemic, which for a long time was not talked about, it was kind of under the radar, yeah. it was still there. And it, it is important for everyone to know, even if you don't personally know someone who is, is suffering um, from this, first of all, most people do at this point, unfortunately. Yeah. It is impacting you in a big way. So it's a part all of us need to figure out how to solve these issues because it's impacting everything else in our communities. So let's talk, Tara, about the impacts, okay? Because, you know, some people I have found they might cheer the fact that population is going down. They're like, oh, great, because we were we were overpopulating our planet anyway. I, I, you know, every now and then people throw that out there, but I don't think they really appreciate what the real impacts of this shift in demographic are. Um, the first one, of course, being just not enough workers. And the report points out so well. Um, the idea that, look, there just simply aren't enough bodies uh, to do the work that needs to be done. We need 20 people and we've only got 18. <laughs> and that means you got to figure out how to get 20 people's worth of work done with only 18 because there just aren't enough people out there. And what that does is that actually creates a competition for workers in the workforce which then translates into increased costs. Because if we have a competition for workers, which I've talked about in some of the things that I've been sharing with, uh, with, with my listeners, um, if there's that increase in competition, the first thing people default to is throw more money at it. Well, we're gonna talk about other ways to go about it. And I have been talking about that. But if you throw more money at the workforce, that's gonna increase the cost of everything that's out there. Um, Tara, what are some of the other impacts uh, that, that uh, the report talked about? First, I, I want to lead with a discussion of whether it's good or bad that there's this change in population, uh, yeah. since you brought it up in that way. My preference on looking at this is to not make a judgment of, of good or bad uh, and to say, this is where we are. Yeah. Good, bad, indifferent. This is where we are. Now, what are we going to do about it, given this change that's here? And going back to you can't use the old playbook. You know, yeah. when uh, you asked me the question earlier, how did I first learn about this report? And I told you what I went through. And part of that was to get current demographic information for some of the different counties in Arizona that I was looking at. What I saw in looking at those reports and the trends in the counties I was looking at, mostly rural, is that unemployment was at its lowest rate, meaning less number of bodies, you know, available to work ever. Yeah. And this is going to continue, especially in those areas where there is a high retiree or baby boomer population. Yeah. And so what is the impact? The impact is you can go about using your old um, and traditional ways of trying to compete, to offer more benefits and more money, and that will have some impact. I and mean, we can talk about that in a little bit. This is the time as challenging as it is to think about new creative ways that you can get the work done. And I'm gonna give an example 
a real example, I, I won't mention the company name because I haven't talked to them and made sure that's okay first, of an area um, in a more rural area of Arizona who could not get the workers despite increasing pay and benefits and their traditional way of um, workers because they produce a product is a 40 hour work week. They need to yep. you know, run the uh, factory. Couldn't get done no matter what they did. Finally, the human resources person decided I'm throwing my playbook out. Yep. And I am going to instead offer part-time flexible work hours with benefits. And suddenly they have all the positions filled and are doing great. Great. And that gets to, and, and you may be um, planning on bringing this up, how, what do we do now? There are there are some systemic issues as a nation or as countries we should look at, but locally for the employers who might be listening, who are looking just at that level, think about what do I need done? How do I get it done with the workforce that's out there, which will increasingly be people who do not want to work 40 hours a week with a set schedule? Yep. Now, some employers, that is a greater challenge. Um, and that was one of the one of the employers I was talking to as part of these uh, programs were those who worked in law enforcement and jails and prisons. Yeah. How do we get, we have to have the people there. Yep. Well, they're exactly. going to have a greater challenge and they need to put on more creative ways of, of how they deal with it. Exactly. It's harder for them. And we'll cover um, we'll cover some of the other uh, the some of the other uh, ways to solve this uh, as well. Um, but back to impacts for just a moment. I don't think a lot of people realize that uh, we're going to have our quality of life impacted by this change because um, few workers uh, basically means that our standard of living. Uh, we're not going to have as many people providing uh, maybe working at the Starbucks for us or delivering groceries, if that's what you shifted to, or pizza delivery, or um, they even talked about even in the medical field, there's fewer people to deliver medical care, and uh, which we have with the baby boomers growing demand on medical care, yet we have fewer people that can actually provide medical care. So all across the board, that's just going to lower our standard of living. And our gross domestic product is also going to be hit. Um, we've had huge growth in our gross domestic product because we've had so many people to participate in that. Um, but the reality is that few workers mean reduced per capita output. And that's directly tied into GDP. Um, and that also impacts wealth creation. So Tara absolutely um, made sure that we kept in mind that the boomers had huge wealth because they had big, there was big numbers there. But in reality, with fewer numbers, we're going to see wealth uh, start to maybe contract a little bit. We will not have as much wealth or as many wealthy people or wealth uh, across the board. I really wanted to touch on on a few things there that that you brought up that I that I think all of your listeners are probably seeing already. Go I ahead. remember the first time I went into the grocery store. Now this is 2021, I think. So the worst of the pandemic, we were through some of that. And I walk in, I just want to buy some eggs. It's early in the morning and there are no eggs. Yep. And there were some, a lot of the shelves were much more empty than I was used to. And this was oh, not yeah. the pandemic scare. And when I asked the cashier at the front, you know, what's happening here? And she said, I'm not really sure. Just the delivery didn't come. Well, that had never happened. Yep. Now think about this. What is happening here? We now know that it is, it, there was a workforce issue in getting the drivers workforce issue in, in getting the people to deliver the goods. And the pandemic accelerated that. So you've already seen, and, and the more you look around now, you're going to see these impacts every day, whether it's the number of we're hiring signs, bonus signs. For example, I saw um, a billboard Texas um, on, on the highway trying to get Arizona teachers to come to Texas signing bonus. You're going to see more and more of that. Now that's, um, pre-K-12 education, we'll get to higher education in a minute. You mentioned higher costs, you mentioned lower GDP. 
I don't personally believe, and I'm just starting to investigate this myself and learn about it, that this is going to be a short-term blip. And let me, let me explain that a little bit more. There are going to be much more major supply chain issues. It's not just going to be that you can't get truckers. Most of international commerce is really around our shipping industries. And it's about getting things from all these different countries, this global commerce that is integrated now. We can't, you know, that's how we all work. This is why there's a hard time buying cars um, and a hard time buying other products. There are supply chain issues. I'm sure many of your listeners are very familiar with this, but this is a, a systemic global issue that is not going to go away anytime soon because of what we're talking about here. Um, there's a, a book that I started reading recently while I was on vacation. I want to bring it up here. Uh, it is called The End of the World is Just Beginning. So that's The End of the World is Just Beginning uh, by Peter. I think he pronounces it Zihan. And he does a lot of work in this area. He's a geopolitical strategist is, I believe, his, his title. And what he talks about is what is going to happen as this continues. It's not just those minor supply chain issues that as workforce shrinks across the globe, you're going to, um, there's going to be this compression of not only our gross domestic uh, product here in the United States, but of selection. Yeah. Global commerce has meant that we have a vast amount of selection. We go on Amazon and say, oh, I want this color of this item and I want it today. <laughs> and we've become very used to that. Yeah. Uh, and, and these are some potential massive changes that are going to come into play that we need to be ready for. And perhaps they won't be as dire as what, what he predicts. I, I'm optimistic in thinking that if we realize we are dealing with this, these are the facts, we can't go back to our normal playbook, that we have the ability to, to work through it, but we have to face uh, what we're doing. And the reason why this report and other things that I had been seeing in separate ways created such an impact on me is yeah. for me, I see this sandemic, this change in demographics affecting every system, whether it is your workforce, your, um, your community, but also our higher education system. So I'm bringing it back to that, all education systems. Our, our higher education system has been uh, traditionally built on, I'm using traditionally for a variety of reasons, a certain age cohort coming through, right? That um, generally that 18 to 25 year old, plenty of exceptions by the way, and uh, I personally love uh, continuing education uh, beyond my official degrees. I think that's very important. But that's what it's been built on. That's where many of the incentives are, whether here in Arizona with the Arizona Board of Regents who governs our public universities or others, it's built on that system. How is that system and every other educational system going to be impact when there simply aren't the same number of students coming through? Right. And for employers, especially for those higher level jobs, this is where you're getting your educated workforce. That's your pipeline. Uh, so all of this is correlated. There are many more tangents I could go down there, but I'll, I'll pause here to say that's an impact. Think of every system you could think of, what happens when you have a sandemic. Right, and, and uh, that point about higher ed, one fewer people just to be enrolled, and two, just a lower participation rate. I did. I didn't quite realize you might be a little closer to it, and might have known that was already out there, Tara. But I was also a little bit uh, surprised that there was a reduced participation rate, especially when there's a recession. There's always, and historically, has always been an increase in people. Hey, I can't work. Go back to school. Educate myself. Uh, build some skills go back into the air after the recession, go back out to the workforce and increase my earning potential. Um, but that actually was is not what happened during the during COVID. Of course, the universities were also <laughs> kind of closed down uh, like everybody else during that time. So that might very well have been 
part of it, but there's just a lot of dynamic. And I love what you said is that there really isn't a singling out of any one industry, edu higher education or anything. This impacts everything where work needs to be done, where people need even, even if there's more people that are enjoying uh vacations or whatnot there's just not enough people for even that part of it so uh yeah it's it's fascinating so let's let's switch gears now and let's go back over to recommendations part of uh you've you've already kind of started us a little bit down that road but let me start off by talking about some of the thoughts that might have already started to go through some of the listeners minds and one might be well if we don't have enough people in the united states and we're not we're not creating as many people in the United States. Why don't we let more people in? Immigration. And so what was fascinating is that in the report uh, that uh, we're talking about, uh, when they get to recommendations, they start off somewhat negative saying, look, immigration is not going to solve this problem. And the reason they said that is because population declines are not just happening in the U.S., they're happening all over the world. Um, in particularly the developed world, Europe and and uh, and even Mexico is having uh, their their challenges. We our biggest immigration, according to the report, comes from our biggest number of immigrants come from Mexico, China, and India, and those are uh, populations that are really starving for workers as well. So they're not going to want to give them up as easily, so to speak. Um, but then uh, also, uh, again, they have their own uh, workforce issues. Now, what uh, I will include in the show notes for today is an updated version of this, the demographic drought report. The 2022 version is called Bridging the Gap in Our Labor Force, where they're doing a little bit more digging into how do we solve this problem that we're, we're uh, faced with. <clears throat> and interestingly enough, in the updated report for 2022, they basically reverse this and say immigration is actually one of the answers. Uh, and uh, they they talk about two things we need to do now. Uh, one of them is we need to improve our immigration policy. In other words, what do we need to do to be more open to more immigrants uh, in, instead of what we have been doing over the last many years, which is really trying to tamp down the immigration? Um, and interestingly enough, one of the big things that people say is uh, that they're that they're taking work away from from Americans, and uh, that's one of the arguments that's made up there. And all I can say is that it's interesting that we don't have enough workers, uh, yet they're the ones that would come and work. And and whose job are you stealing anyway? I don't want to get into politics on that. Just kind of speaking factually. And then um, the other thing is is that. Uh, we need to take, and this is Darren's opinion, by the way, not Tara's or not this report's, but if in fact, uh, you know, the United States is at a place where people really want to come here, and we're very fortunate that people want to come to the United States for whatever reasons they have, uh, there might be a time in the future where people will say, you know what, I don't want to go there. I'd rather go somewhere else. Well, we've got this built-in advantage for now. Probably it'll stay, but you know, I'd rather look at it as let's take advantage of the fact that people want to come here and uh, and and make the most of that. So, uh, Tara, on the immigration, I know you've had a lot of thoughts and a lot of of uh, work in that area. Did you want to add anything to the things that I shared on immigration? You know, I'll go back to how I started when I looked at the workforce issues and I was trying to figure out what's really going on here. Go to the data and the facts. Yep. And, you know, you said, I don't want to talk politics. Unfortunately, politics has been a part of getting away from the facts. If, if you want to look at is immigration good or bad for our workforce and our economic development, then there are plenty of studies based on facts and economic data. That's where I would look. And by the way, some years ago, we, we did a report on Arizona and Mexico. Arizona and Mexico that was really focused on the economic advantages and looking at data. Um, does this help or hurt Arizona? Overwhelmingly, every time I've personally looked into the, the research and the economic data, it helps us to have an open, workable immigration policy. And it is the politics and the stories and marketing that are used for other purposes that take us away from that data. So right. first of all, always go to the data, take your source in mind, 
when I was in law school or as a trial lawyer, you would always look at where is the bias in the data that you're getting from someone. You need to take that into account. Uh, that's part of analyzing it. So keeping that in mind, I, I'm going to come back a little bit to the, this book that I've been listening to that came out, I think, just this year that I referenced, The End of the World is Just Beginning. And in this, which is a global perspective, it's not based on the United States, the author's opinion is that, that the United States, the good news, is one of the countries that is in the best position to weather this giant systemic change that's going to affect the world. One of the reasons, there's many, but one of the important reasons is that it is a country that people want to go to. There we go. Yeah. That people want to immigrate to, that that talent that we all need, that they want to go to if the appropriate procedures are in place to allow that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll add one more aspect. When you, again, when you look at data, when you create higher technology jobs, it actually creates more jobs at the lower end that are not taken, um, if you will, that are open to immigrants and that need immigrants. And one of the largest, I believe, areas of employment that is needed is in the service industry and the hotel industry. Yeah. Uh, right now. Yes. So I've kind of covered the, the gamut, looking way forward, looking globally, what we're experiencing right now. But most important, I, I think for me, I always look at the the, the frame of reference on how we solve a problem. What are we trying to achieve now? What are we working with right now and how can we achieve that? Yep. What, what we're trying to achieve, all of us, is to you know, live an economically prosperous life, to feel safe, to feel happy, you know, all, all those kind of things. How do we achieve that now given where we are? If yeah. it is, how do we find those employees we need to look at immigration. It's the it's one of the most important answers. A, a, a second one, of course, is how do we utilize those people who only want to work part time? How do we do that more effectively? Yeah, and you've given us one answer. There was that the employer that you said was one of the consulting clients uh, for Arizona Town Hall, and and they said, hey, let's just we're going to build our organization around part time workers. We'll, we'll cover the hours, but it'll be done by part time. So that's part of that flexibility. One of the answers that that is pretty uh, pretty obvious is uh, have more babies, right? Let's just figure out how we can do that. Now, there's a problem with that one, and and it's actually not an answer. Maybe it's a long term answer because we're two decades away. Think about it before a worker hits the marketplace um, and the and the workplace rather. Uh, that's two. That's like uh, twenty years. So so that's not an immediate solution, and this is an immediate problem. So we should probably start working on that, perhaps. But then when you say that. Uh, we can actually go to some of our, our friends around the world who tried to do this. Europe went through, and the report identifies this, walks through this. Europe tried to increase its birth rate, um, which is down sub two, like 1.8 or something like that in Europe. We're talking all of the, all of the developed nations uh, that are working um, as part of the EU. Um, they, they did a ton with trying to incentivize. They saw that their, their birth rates went up um, through all their incentives, maybe a couple of points. And we're not talking like, uh, like it went from 1.8 to 1.9 or maybe 2.0 for a little bit. But it basically, as soon as they stopped, they realized it wasn't working. It fell right back to where it was. So <clears throat> having more babies is obviously an answer, but it's a difficult one. What about technology, um, Tara? What are the options with technology? I want to wade a little bit into the having more babies. Um, Please do. Yes, I should have asked you to wait on that one. Go ahead. First, I, I think that topic can be fraught with all sorts of other um, issues that are troubling as a woman. Um, you know, there, I, and, and I think that's important to keep in mind. There, there have been some... Um, countries that have had some success by offering greater family leave, by reduced childcare, because we, we also know childcare is related to other things, your current workforce. It's also related to, the, to those who are saying, do I, can I afford to have more children? Can I bring this into my life? Yeah. Well, a lot of it depends on the cost of childcare. And those who, um, you know, one of the areas that we talked about was some of the workers who are here right now they are women with small children. 
And uh, the challenge with childcare right now, not just in Arizona, this is a nationwide issue, is that it costs more to put your child in childcare and work. And, and so if, you know, some of the countries in Europe have government um, sponsored childcare or other creative ways that allow for that uh, safe childcare to take place, safe quality childcare to take place. That is, I would say, one of those fixes within our, our current system of thinking. Yeah. And, and really within our current system of thinking, what we keep going back to, it's, it's so easy to go back to how we've always done things, is how do we get out of this situation? We want just as many workers and just as much pr productivity. And it's okay to go down that route. And that's going to include being flexible, uh, retaining, immigration, and all those answers. I think it's equally important and valuable to say, do, do we need to think about what is it we want as humans, as countries, as communities? We want safety, we want meaning, we want you know, a certain amount of food on our table. How do we get there now? And those might be some very different answers. It yeah. might be that maybe um, we don't need, you know, 5,000 different kinds of items within our house. And those are harder decisions to keep in mind, but they're important global ones to look at. The I like to say, let's not waste a good pandemic. The pandemic made a lot of us go deep inside and to reconsider how we do things. Right. What's most important? Uh, and I, I know this is kind of, I'm, I'm going a little bit sideways here, but I think it's important to keep in mind, there is a bigger picture to, that we all need to keep in mind, which is what is our goal? How do we get there now? Okay, so now back to, let's assume we want to stay within kind of the realm we're talking about. Uh, so we talked about, are, are we going to be able to increase birth rates Boy, there's so many problems with um, with trying to do that. Unless you have incentives, I think that's the only safe avenue uh, to go in that respect. Incentives, including childcare. Yep. Um, let's see. What was your next question? I forgot. We we're moving so, on. Uh, so technology. technology. Or, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Let's do technology. There's a couple of items within technology. How do we use technology to to maybe solve some of these? these uh, sans-demic problems? Well, we've, we've, we see a lot of it, and I'll use an example that we probably all see. Um, grocery store cashiers or cashiers in general is another job that is um, in high demand on the employer side. They need, they need more of them. So you've all, many of us have done the self-checkout or you've seen yep. them. That absolutely helps with technology. But if you look at the data, I believe most workforce and, and economists will tell you Technology is great, but it doesn't actually uh, get rid of jobs overall. In fact, it can create more jobs. You still you still need people in different roles. Yes. And so te technology might just allow you to shift those roles or to do some things more effectively. And it can be an answer and is important to consider, but it is not, um, it's not going to solve everything. Exactly. So, I mean, we've got, there's obviously, if you look at manufacturing, and I love your example of just the self-checkout lines, um, but, you know, to the, in the manufacturing, we've got robots that are helping to, to uh, assemble vehicles and other components. That helps. Um, automation basically is helping to increase productivity. So we can just do more with the worker. Each worker can be more productive um, with automation. And the one thing they did mention in Terra, you know, you hit this, you hit this well that not only were you creating more workers, but there are cer certain jobs. Obviously, we know that you just can't automate. You can't ro robot, right? Like, you know, there's still skills like leadership. Um, the report talks about it specifically: leadership, problem solving, collaboration, just emotional. Those are all things that you just can't replace. Um, it, that there's going to take people to do those. So, so we can only get so far, right? Uh, with just that one item, and then uh, the gap report specifically talks about one immigration, but also how do we how do we bring more people? How do we bring more people off the sidelines? And they talk about the older workers. Don't give up on the older workers, right? It's true that they might be 
um, able to retire, but there's a whole lot of folks out there that are not at that place of maybe great enough wealth that they can do that. So rethinking the incentives that we give to the older demographic so that the uh, the people that might be retiring instead of at 65, they're sticking around until 75 or, or even longer. Um, but they're gonna, they might need some uh, some reskilling or some upskilling, they say, or or maybe uh, aligning what their skill set is better, so that we connect the the worker to and their skill set to what is out there. And then um, keep in mind that this whole notion to this idea of the way of regularly thinking, um, a lot of the reports, findings, and uh, and recommendations are based on uh, a retirement age of 65. Well, Tara, I think the reality is, is that that's with a certainly with people living longer um, and people living help more healthy. I, I, you know, we've already see that the 65 is now more like 70. I think we might even say, even though 65 is embedded in so much of what we do. Um, but I, but we see that creeping up as well. Uh, maybe that time where people are like, yeah, 65, I'm nowhere close to ready. I'm healthy. I'm engaged. I'm going to keep going. And, and uh, maybe, maybe 75 or even longer is where they're saying, I want to continue to work and be productive. So what else with the older workers, Tara, would you, uh, would you add to any of that? I'm going to come back to uh, something I've said a couple of times now, and I want to repeat it here and I'll use the older workers as an example. What's the problem we're dealing with? What are the resources we have on hand to solve it? Problem we're dealing with is the demographic shift, um, uh, workforce issues. What are our resources? This older generation, baby boomers, who are healthier and living longer than they ever have. And we now know from not only maybe personal experience, but from scientific studies that being engaged in meaningful work allows you to live longer, healthier, and to have a better quality of life. Definitely. This is a natural wealth of opportunity to meet those workforce needs, but it requires thinking non-traditionally. Yep. It requires thinking what is going to motivate that person on the sidelines to work for me? Now, maybe if it's, let's say it's a cashier where you have to show up and you have to actually, you know, be there physically to work, perhaps it's a flexible schedule and benefits are huge for older employees. Yep. So it might be that health benefits are far more important than even the wages. So it really takes asking, what, what can I do to get you here maybe to work, you know, 10 hours a week? Uh, I know a lot of people who retired who would go work at a very low wage uh, job to get those health benefits. Now, this can create a challenge if you're a, a small business or a small employer where that can be more difficult to get those health benefits. And, and actually, I want to uh, address that maybe after answering this question or when you're ready on some systemic issues that I see that not only a shrinking of gross domestic product, but that we need to consider as, as organizations. But getting back to those older workers, so that's where there's a workforce. We've talked about immigration. Obviously, we need to be looking at that and solving that. But back to those older workers, what is the role and how can we bring them into play? Um, if it's a new skill set, it's, it's a new type of job. This is where our higher education institutions and many of them are already stepping into this. Our, our community colleges uh, have a lot of expertise in this area. Redoing the programs in a way to allow for what may be certifications or trainings, not necessarily a, a degree. Right. And I would add for those governing organizations or those who provide funding and incentives, rethink how you grade or provide funding to higher education institutions. And for example, often they're looked at, well, how many graduates do you have in certain degrees within a certain period of time? It's a wonderful measure back in the 1970s or 80s. Right. That's not where we are. Maybe it should instead be an incentive or funding that uh, allows the workforce to meet our needs, which often will now include 
getting those baby boomers back and retrained, even if it's just a certificate, because yeah. that's, that's the new area that higher education institutions need to step into more fully. And they already are, by the way. There's some doing some wonderful work. Um, and, and I think also looking at, really looking at what is going to matter most to those baby boomers with the lifestyle they have. Remember, this is the richest generation. So they may not need as much the money, but they might need it. They might need the health benefits. But often it's going to be something a little different. They want meaning. They want to feel like this is their time to give back. Even if you are uh, a grocery store looking for cashiers, can you find a way to integrate bringing meaning and connection to this group of people? Yeah, and and that will have an that will have an impact. And so, uh, Tara, I, I couldn't have uh, I couldn't have asked you to tee this last piece up better than what you just did. And um, I want to bring what the last piece of recommendation uh, around to what I talk about in building a freedom-focused organization. Uh, and, and, and both reports uh, talked about this. First of all, the, the, the Sandsdemic report, I call it the first one, they, they, they specifically say at the very end, value people more. Um, because if you show that you value people more and that workers are your most valuable asset, which I've said many, many times, and, and, you, and you focus on how do we make this a place where people want to be, building a stronger culture, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the way that we help to, to keep people around. And then in the, in the gap report, the second report, um, they basically, you know, em embrace that freedom mentality, okay, including, and that's what they say, they call it the freedom mentality, and that includes flexible hours, um, contract work, maybe, uh, and remote and hybrid options. So they're talking about how do we work with the direction that the pandemic basically revealed uh, that was that we all kind of knew that people like to work remotely, and then there was a lot of it's probably not going to work real well, or I don't like it, or whatever. To hey, this actually really works, and I don't think we're ever going back. Well, that has revealed to us that we can create this environment that is much more nurturing, uh, much more um, uh, enticing, uh, where people can go to work and really enjoy what they're doing. Uh, it's a it's alignment between the values of the organization and the people that you bring in. Don't bring people in that don't sync up with your core values, that don't want to go where you want to go as an organization. These are all the things that I talk about in Freedom Focus for organizations uh, so that there's a much greater freedom for not only the owner, uh, personal and professional freedom, but also for the people that make up the organization because you want them to be as the owner, remember, you want them enthusiastic about making the organization successful and running the organization in your absence so that you don't have to be doing everything uh, and they're helping you to grow the organization. That's what's key and important for Freedom Focused. So uh, as we wrap up, because we're we're at the end here, Tara, um, I know you had five or six more points you wanted to raise, uh, and, and, I, and, and I apologize if we're not able to cover all of those, but um, how does, my last question for you is kind of how does this really apply to the work that Arizona Town Hall um, uh, is doing? Because we, we and, and that might be a silly question to ask at the very end, but maybe it's just opening it up for you because you've answered a lot of that, but but maybe it's opening it up for maybe some closing thoughts from you on this whole big topic in this report, perhaps in uh, in general. Well, first of all, there's a lot to chew on and think about with this topic. So we could probably talk all day. I appreciate that. Uh, how does it affect the work that we're doing? You know, when I came on as president of the town hall and started attending every statewide town hall and now 30 to 50 community programs per year we're yeah. listening and, and learning and getting recommendations. One type of recommendation repeatedly and always comes up no matter what the topic. No matter what the, the topic. Need, no matter what the topic, the need for greater collaboration, perhaps even consolidation, <clears throat> and finding ways to work together better. Take a quick sip of tea here. 
And so how, do, how does this impact some of the things we're talking about? You talked about the, the shrinking of the gross domestic product, perhaps, um, you know, as we move forward in, in the next decade, there might be less choices, there's going to be a shrinking. If we know that's going to happen, how can we do this proactively and in a way that, that works well? And this is a time, whether it's for businesses, organizations, educational institutions, who previously have not been incentivized to perhaps find new partnerships, maybe a business merger. This is the time to really look at that. This is what is going to allow you to, to not only weather these changes that are happening, whether you like them or not, but also to continue and strengthen your mission by taking them into account so that the, the mission will continue to live as you move forward. So I, I think that's one way that I was able to quickly work in, Darren, in our time, that this is an even more global way of looking at things. There is going to be a shrinking of items. You can fight that, whether you're a a nonprofit or a civic organization or an educational institution, or you can realize this is what's happening. Now, what do I need to do and what can I do about it? That's awesome. And, and so true of what we need to be doing. Tara, thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast and sharing, uh, well, for sharing this report with me, which was, which obviously I'm enthusiastic about it, uh, maybe as much as you, um, but also for sharing your time with, uh, with myself and with all of the listeners and your thoughts on this important topic. So thank you so much for being here. And thank you, Darren, and for all the work you're doing with Freedom Focused and other efforts, not just for your business clients, but those of us in the nonprofit world really appreciate bringing your expertise to bear so that we can do our work better in improving communities. So thank you. Absolutely. So that's it for this week's episode. I want to thank everybody very much, as always, for being a listener. If you like the show, please be sure to share it with your friends and your colleagues. And I look forward to being back with you again in two weeks. Until then, stay focused on your freedom.